welcome to Elixir Talk, your favorite Elixir podcast, where we frequently just do it live. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I'm joined by Chris Bell. We're doing it live. We're just doing it live. We're doing it live as of last week. As of, yeah, right. Live, but delayed, because it's not actually live. But it's real for us, folks. That's all that matters. Everything's always live for the people experiencing, right? <laughs> I don't know. Is that... <laughs> Is this all a simulation? Who knows? But tune in next time where we'll uh, we'll really get into that topic. But for now, yeah. we have nice to talk about podcast. Yeah, I don't even know if we could do that one. It honestly, even just like venturing into that subject makes my head hurt. So you know, I've been watching uh, some YouTube videos recently about like time and physics, and I watched one last night about how the Earth moves through space. Mm. And um, it was specifically about, well, it was about a couple of things, I guess. But it was about how we measure time and how, like, the concept of a day is pretty strange and not consistent because, um, so the Earth will complete one rotation, but because it's also moving around the sun, uh, one rotation of the Earth means that the sun is in a slightly different position. So it's, like, slightly less, or it hasn't quite caught up to where it should be. Uh, that's part of it, but also the Earth's uh, rotation around the sun is elliptical. It's not an orbit. So as it uh, gets to different parts in the orbit, then its speed changes. So that also changes the time of the day and um, so on and so forth. Meanwhile, uh, there was a cool graphic about like uh, the sun moving along some line and the Earth like spiraling around it in some kind of helix. Then they pointed out that we are all moving... Um, towards something called i think the great attractor mm. like when i say we i mean like the planet and the solar system and the galaxy and like a bunch of other stuff in outer space uh is all s- slowly moving and uh, slowly it's moving at like millions of miles per hour we just don't notice it because it's all relative in the same direction but it's kind of funny to think about us you know traveling along through space at top speed and we just don't notice it because of relativity or something What the uh, listeners didn't see is Desmond was making a lot of really good, useful hand gestures during that that, uh, explanation about how the Earth moves (laughs) through the solar system that you would never know. But, um, you know, thanks for that insight, Desmond. Honestly, I forgot about the listeners for a second. I thought I was just talking to you. (laughs) He was just so in the zone of talking about this YouTube video. Um, that's, That's it, folks. We are... We have, like, just completed Elixir Talk at this point. It's like the language, it's done. Desmond just finished it with that amazing deep dive into the solar system. So we're now going to start a solar system talk podcast. Is that right? Sure. Sure. Yeah, Yeah. where we just recap other people's work on YouTube videos. (laughs) Yeah, because we cannot do anything original (laughs) in that space. Or maybe not this space either, apparently. So uh, that's where things are. Sorry, yeah, we barely... <laughs> oh my um i'm doing pretty well actually uh some big news on our end is the uh speakers were announced for apex la um just the other day so it's a pretty great lineup um the focus this year again is uh real time whether that's like real-time interaction um uh, real-time design patterns um scalability questions and uh so forth and it's uh, a pretty great lineup of speakers. Um, our keynote is uh, one of our keynotes is being delivered by two people, uh, Bo Hubach, sorry if I blew that, and Zach Kayser. 
I'm giving a talk about real-time experiences with Live View, uh, and that's kind of a UX-focused talk, which I'm super interested in. Aaron Harpole is giving a great talk called um, The Case Against Scale. You know, we sort of fetishize, like, growing and scale in the community, and Aaron's saying, like, what if that is actually totally bogus? So I'm looking forward to that talk. Uh, Bruce Tate is giving a great talk. There's several talks on nerves. There's several talks on nerves. Uh, Jeff Grunewald is talking about uh, gathering data from connected vehicles, which, uh, as some of you may know, is a big deal in L.A. because um, we spend a lot of time in our cars here. Uh, A talk on scenic and gaming, um, real-time strategy at light speed. Uh, something about using nerves to control an airplane, um, a talk by Per Stritzinger about the grist board. If you've heard of nerves, this is like a step below nerves where they don't even have, they don't even have, um, uh, well, wait, they do have the VM, but they use the Erlang VM like as a unit kernel. So it's pretty low level. I mean, where they're booting this thing in, you know, crazy places. Uh, Shanti Chalaram, uh, MPEX veteran giving a talk on high-performance data structures in Erlang. And Todd Rezadek, another friend of the podcast and uh, veteran speaker, is talking about how it's time to embrace Erlang. Um, you know, we have, uh, I would say, a developing relationship with the Erlang community, but we think like, oh, an Erlang library, I'd rather not use that. And, oh, stuff's written in Erlang, whatever, I'm an Elixir programmer. And maybe that attitude is doing us a disservice. So I think Todd's going to give us a, a little what for about it. Nice. Yeah, it looks like a great lineup. So uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to the page there and to the where you can purchase tickets. They're on sale right now, right? Tickets are on sale now, yes. And do you want to tell us a bit more about the price of those tickets and the mechanism of purchasing? For sure. You can find tickets for sale on our website. Uh, there's a link at the top of the page. Um, there's a couple different ticketing tiers based on when you buy your ticket. So the sooner you buy it, the cheaper it is. Uh, tickets are starting at 225 bucks, and then they go up to $295. So I definitely recommend jumping on that. Um, yeah, it's going to be a great, great day uh, of talks. And of course, the familiar MPEX vibes. We're going to be back in the same uh, wonderful venue downtown, the Hungarian Social Club. Uh, which may or may not have patched their roof by the time we come back. Uh, there should be live music, live art, great food. You know, it's MPEX. Plants, uh, animals. Not animals. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> when have we ever had animals? <laughs> Maybe I missed that, you know? Um, I really do hope that they patched the roof. Last year, it rained a lot, which I guess is unusual for LA because the roof leaked, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. it was all fine. We went on with the show and everything was good. So, yeah. It's kind of fun when things don't work out a little bit. Is, Is it? it? As an yeah. organizer? I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, the funny part was when one of one of my organizers came up to me. I was, I think I was talking to you at the time. And she was like, the, uh, the venue staff is serving alcohol. And I was like, okay. She was like, no, they're serving alcohol to like attendees. And I was like, why? She was like, well, it's... The heat isn't working, so this is their strategy for keeping people warm. Like, I just want to let you know. And it's like, all right, well, I'm not going to tell them no. But It, seems it like was a- also like 10 a.m. 
<laughs> it was very early. That was like that. That was the most interesting part about that. But you you just never know what's going to happen at an MPEX. So uh, if you haven't been before, folks, it's well worth going. Really good day. You actually get. I think there's just like 14 talks. It's a very busy schedule this year, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a full day. Very full day. So you're getting a lot, lot of bang for your buck. Um, so hopefully we can see a few of you there. I'm sure you'll hear us talk about it a few more times on the podcast, and we may even have some of those speakers on before they give their talks as well. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm definitely excited, Desmond. I also really appreciate the the renewed focus and shifting it a bit more around real time. I think is really interesting, especially given the state of where things are in the Elixir ecosystem right now, uh, with of course live view, and of course we talk about channels and presence and things like that a lot. So I think it's a really nice mixture of Elixir with some nervesy kind of stuff. We're talking about real time. So going to be a good mm-hmm. day. Good day out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you Definitely. going to be there, Chris? <laughs> I, I hope so. Um, I don't. So uh, uh, side note, I guess paying for conferences on your own and not having a company sponsor it makes it a lot more difficult <laughs> to go. But yeah. um, like... Something that we've tried to do with MPEX the whole time is make it so it's affordable for you to go without your ha- company having to pay, right? Like, I think charging six, $700 for conference tickets is just makes it out of reach of individuals. And uh, so that's been one of the principles we've had the whole time. And obviously, it's expensive to put on a conference, especially when you're paying for... Uh, your Like, at MPEX, we actually pay for people to come. We pay for their flights. We pay for their hotels. We give them a stipend... Um, so it, it adds up and that's why we have sponsors obviously but we do try and keep the ticket price nice and low um, so individuals can also pay as well so anyway that was a side note about the fact that I also now have to pay so I'm I'm really hoping I can be there or hopefully the startup I'm at has made it by then and they can pay for me we'll never know well I guess we will know in February so <laughs> So stay tuned, folks. Yeah, stay tuned for that exciting adventure <laughs> where Chris may or may not have a conference paid for him. Um, but yeah, Desmond, what else is going on in your world? Uh, what else is going on? Um, been busy hiring um, my company. That's pretty cool. We closed around recently, so that's pretty exciting. And now we're looking to bring on uh, one or two folks to the fold. Uh, working on some automation. We've actually been digging into... Um, pdf libraries uh some web scraping like we're dealing with a lot of very manual processes and so that's been that's been interesting and like a lot of what the i would say the next six months look like is uh capturing stuff that happens in the real world Hmm. Uh, because a lot of what we do at pay it off when we um try to understand what your uh what the best like repayment plan is for you or what forgiveness programs you qualify uh, part of that is like, you have to certify things with, uh, the IRS every so often. Like if you have a major life event, you may or may not still qualify for one of these plans. And so part of our challenge is like, how do we, how do we figure that out? You know, how do we capture these things that are happening in the real world and, um, turn them into something operational? So, so how, how are you thinking about that in uh, like design of an application, especially for Elixir as well? Have you started to kind of noodle on that? Um, not really, because there's a couple other things that we're trying to tackle first, uh, and that's kind of the, the further distant bit. It's really like 
how do you, I mean, in general, I mean, if we're talking about automating processes, um, you have to get it into the computer somehow. And I think this is one of the challenge, not the challenge, but this is one of the things that nerves is like working towards. And this is common in the quantified self scene. I don't know if you spend any time in that, but it's like, how do you gather, how do you gather data from the real world? I mean, you can put a device like a sensor on your car and know how fast it's going. You can wear a watch that says what your heart rate is. Um, you could put a speaker in your house that records everything you say and sometimes order something off Amazon. But like, you know, how do you know what happens? Uh, mm-hmm. And how do you design workflows that uh, don't require people to keep going back to their computer? Like, how do you make it automatic for them? Um, but also making it not a total invasion of privacy. Right. So you're, you're, you're literally capturing all these like discrete life events and trying to, well, you will be capturing these things to stop people having to input massive forms, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, somehow. I mean, it doesn't make sense for someone to get a raise and then like run over to pay it off and type something in. Right. So. Right. But that, that sounds like a really interesting integrations problem as well in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think I've mentioned this before a little bit, like our challenges are not really around uh, concurrency, and um, I mean, something, some about distribution because, you know, we're financial infrastructure, so we have uptime requirements. Um, but it's not like hard computer science right now. Right. It's kind of like janky hacking. And I'm embarrassed to admit some of that out loud, but, you know, I think the first step in these things is some janky hack- hackery. And then over time, like once you've solidified yourself as a major player, then you have leverage to you know, you have conversations with the IRS about their API endpoints, which don't mm. currently exist. Um, and yeah, but you know, you have to start somewhere. Mm. No, it makes sense. I, I mean, like testing this thing must be a nightmare as well, right? I was just thinking about all the different paths you have to test just on like life events and being in different states and different qualifying things. And it mm-hmm. must be a lot of paths to keep track of. And, you know. Yeah, and actually something that... um Brian Paxton, early developers started doing is writing property-based tests. Oh, because cool. Okay. When, yeah. Yeah. When you have uh, some of these calculations that have six or seven different input variables that can span a range of values, like how do you test the bounds of the algorithm? How do you make sure mm-hmm. that you have a missing edge case, which, you know, blows out the whole calculation and says that you owe $10 million or something. <laughs> uh, so yeah. we, we, we've just started to do that, but I think it's going to be pretty critical to battle testing. Um, some of our logic have you have you spent much time with property testing is that something you've looked at no i haven't uh i haven't seen a lot of use case for it in some of the work that i've been doing um mm. this is the f- the first case that i've come across i mean i know that there are others out there but like this is a great example of we have this uh algorithm that deals in projections and um has varying inputs that we don't control uh yeah. and like it's not our algorithm um, I mean, we we wrote our algorithm, obviously, but uh, we're also capturing like Department of Education calculations. Mm. So we also need to track uh, some of their like their logic as well. Um, so yeah, like we're not we're not making this up. We're not necessarily a source of truth. So making right. sure that our bounds are understood and respected is super important. Do you want to explain property testing for the listeners? Uh, great question. I'm a little nervous about it because I, don't know I, I felt the same way, which is why I, I 
put the question on you rather than me, so please don't turn it back around. <laughs> well, I feel like you always start this when you're like, Desmond, what's going on? <laughs> I have to think of something to say. But um, I'll take a stab at it because uh, here at Elixir Talk, you know, we're not afraid of looking like fools. And, um, you know, I think it's important for people to feel comfortable uh, saying stuff they're not confident about because there's no other way we learn. So I'm going to give this a shot. And those of you that know better, please feel free to reach out and correct us. So property-based testing, let me start with traditional unit testing, which is you have your function. Ideally, it's a pure function, takes inputs, has some output, it's deterministic, no side effects, great. So to test that the function works as you expect, you call it with specific arguments, um, and you test that you get a specific result from it. So this is fairly easy for basic cases of like, if you are testing for voting age, is age greater than 18? True or false? Wonderful. Done. That's two tests. Uh, maybe you want to test for if the person is 18 uh, as a boundary case, or maybe if the person is less than zero. I don't know. Depending on how you wrote the algorithm. Fine. Um, basic unit testing. Great. The problem with that is you are only testing the cases that you have defined. And uh, you don't know, like, you can't be sure that it covers all possible cases or even like a greater range of cases that you haven't thought of. So in terms of like, is age greater than 18, there, there's not a lot of room uh, for, uh, for uncertainty. But when you have several different variables uh, that can span different ranges, and then the calculations will change based on different combinations of these things, then it becomes very important to check... Uh, to check different values and a programmer is not going to sit there and write thousands of tests covering, you know, ranges, like all the possible permutations of different ranges of each argument um, and different edge cases. So what property-based testing does is um, lets you define, uh, I think cases or like range, I forget what the word is for it, for each of the things. And then it runs through them all and generates a like random sampling of tests uh, random sampling of the different data combinations, and then it runs those tests. Right. So in regular unit-based testing, your unit tests are only ever as good as the examples you're plugging into the test, right? Exactly. And the idea here is, from what you said, is um, the property test is generating a range of values, and they can be, uh, you're defining what the valid values are, and then you're testing a range of different values, and then uh, generating streams of that data and, and, and testing those things, right? Exactly. So, yeah. So if I wanted to find a range of possible, um, suppose I can take out a loan at some, uh, some percentage rate, um, that I have to pay it back on. Um, well, maybe I want to test my algorithm with like all possible percentage rates between three and 12%. Mm -hmm. Well, I can write a bunch of tests, but then again, I have to hold like all the other values constant while I check this range of, um, possible APRs. Or I can just define that uh, in as a property, and then it will be smart about um, creating tests for each of these. And it doesn't, I don't think it steps through every possible number. It does some clever math. And I think um, proper is different from, what's the other one? There's two Stream libraries. data. Stream data. Yeah. Um, I think proper is better about looking at the ranges you've given it and figuring out uh, what are the most useful ones to check. But then, you know, it'll generate tens of thousands of tests. Right. And run all those. But, 
so, like to, to to me this seems like such a good application of it from what you've described of like such a varying range of inputs and there's too much to logically test through examples so generating those makes a lot of sense right yeah. i i really struggle sometimes to find other use cases for it but maybe i i i often still think in the world of like um i'm using like ex machina right where i'm like oh i'm generating a struct and it has all this data and the data looks like this shape and sometimes i want to be like oh, i want to generate like permutations on that data to try different kind of variations on it and i keep wondering if property testing would be a good fit for that i don't know if you do you, do you know an answer to that my my best guess at this point and again like i am still getting used to property-based testing is that if you can keep in your head the number of possible combinations of the data then you don't need to use you don't need to fall back to properties that's interesting yeah i honestly uh with our data model it's getting increasingly complex and the the kind of myriad different combinations of the data mean that like I'm, I'm never doing a good enough job with my example data to, to test all those cases, you know? Mm-hmm. And I keep feeling like um, maybe it's a time for me to start thinking about, like, generating some permutations or something of it. So. Well, in your case, I mean, when you have these, like, medical protocols, which can have different combinations of uh, dosages, and maybe that depends on, like, uh, patient weight and all this other thing, like, that sounds like it could be a good application. Yeah, a lot of that um, on our side. So thank you for remembering what I do, first of all. Um, So the app I'm working on is doing uh, a lot of medical-based calculations, but a lot of that happens on the the client side, actually, because we have an offline kind of first search Uh engine where it's computing all the results there. But uh, And I think actually for doing dosing calculations, it would be really easy for us to generate um, like streams of uh, these different permutations uh, of the data and then testing out different dosing calculations with it i think that would be great actually um but on my side it's more about like have i made sure that given all of these different combinations of data coming in that the validation rules are still applied etc etc so it's more like kind of classic data storage problems but there's Mm -hmm. still some calculations at certain points um so there's definitely a place for it and it's something i know um there's the book that fred Herbert wrote um that we had fred on the podcast uh, a while back um and we will put a link to that book in the show notes i also just stumbled across the uh stream data elixir um, blog post that they wrote in 2017 announcing the library um we'll put that in the show notes as well it's a good starting point but i'm gonna like try and gather a few more resources because this is something that's been really interesting to me recently and uh something weirdly that we've never talked about on the podcast before because i guess neither of us had use cases to do it until now so it's really Mm -hmm. cool that you you're getting to do that in the app and it seems like a really great use case for it as well yeah we've already found a couple of bugs it's been pretty awful oh for real that's Mm -hmm. cool yeah i know um every time i speak to programmers doing it they're like it's amazing. I found all these bugs and I'm always like, did you? But I guess, uh, in, especially in your case, it's like, of course you would, right? That many different inputs. Yeah. And in our case, like we're dealing with people's money. Yeah. So, you know, a bug can mean a couple thousand bucks for some, someone. Mm. It's, it's kind of where you have to push back on that concept of, uh, what did you call it before? Janky hacking. Janky <laughs> hacking. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess it's not great when you're doing that and you're also dealing with money. So you have to make sure that the bit that's dealing with the money is well tested. Oh, brother. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. We put a, we put a lot of effort into that in particular. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. 
I'm sure. Uh, yeah, because you're right. Like, this is money, and money matters. Money matters. Yeah, that's really cool, though. Um, yeah, we'll definitely put all those links in the show notes today and make sure that... Uh, I, and I guess, like, if there's any listeners out there who have done this and had some good experiences with it, as always, we'd love to hear from you about that. I think... Um, thank you for everyone who always calls us out when we've got something wrong or sends us other resources to help us learn as well. I think it's really good. Um, I really appreciate the sharing that goes on in the community as well. So thank you everyone for that. And would love to hear a bit more about property testing here as well. Um, I know actually it's something that we talked about for an MPEX training could be really useful to have a whole session on that and really do a deep dive on it as well. I think it's one of those subjects that you might not know how to get started with or you might not know how to fit it into your application so um having someone kind of go into it could be really useful didn't andrea do uh training about that at mpex definitely yeah yeah he did yeah was that an mpex one i forget well what other trainings do we do i don't know some lots various nerves things <laughs> hmm. trainings always good always a good time so uh yeah. they'll be happening again at MPEX LA and MPEX NYC this year. So, yeah. Yeah, we're finalizing uh, a couple of very fun trainings um, for this year. So, stay tuned. Of course, uh, we will let you know when we're ready for that. Uh, we should have some news in the coming weeks. Awesome. So, have you got much else going on in your app and in your world? Any other interesting problems you've been dealing with? Uh, yeah, but before I get into that, I wanted to see if anything's up with you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, actually, not that much. I've been really digging deep into just building out some uh, some notifications code. That's what I've been working on over the last week. And dealing with a lot more Ecto. I, I'm, I feel like a lot of my patterns have been established in my API, um, yeah. especially with GraphQL. Everything kind of came together. And there isn't that much new, interesting stuff that I can talk about. Um, given that a lot of what I've been doing is just building on top of those patterns, which, first of all, it makes me feel good that some of the patterns have scaled to this point because we're now like many, many resources in and everything still kind of feels good. Um, one interesting area that I've been looking at, though, has been around authorization, actually, okay. um, in my API. So classic SaaS problem of... You have a user, they can access certain resources, they can't access other resources, right? Very, 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 very common case. Um, and the way I modeled that right now is with a, a kind of a role-based access control system where each role can perform different kinds of permissions. Um, I borrow some of the concepts that we may have been familiar with in other worlds, like can-can, do you remember that in Rails? Like, can this user do this thing? Um, so my authorization must user do this thing must right right exactly i just do can because i'm like can question mark and just return a boolean every time so uh -huh. all of my authorization policies get passed in the user um a resource and then uh an atom that describes the action um and then i obviously have a set of rules that says can this user do this thing or not invariably what that ends up with is saying does this user belong to the owning organization of this resource, right? So I have like an account-based model. So I always have to check, does this thing belong to an account? Is that user on the account? And then mm -hmm. do they have permission? Um, and really that's what a lot of my authorization looks like. And it's kind of all nice encapsulated as these roles and permissions and stuff like that. But 
where it's getting hard now. So that that's like scaled okay for the time being. But where that's getting difficult now is I actually need to introduce a more of a dynamic role system. So right now I have like a hard-coded set of roles. There's like three roles in the system. Each role can do a couple of different things. But now what I need to do is introduce a model where I can say, you may be of this role and you can dynamically create roles for your organization and they can do this subset of actions, right? So now that's like quite a big refactor across my, unfortunately, across my code base. So uh-huh. that's my next challenge. Um, have, you, have you had to deal with that in the past? Uh, role-based access control? Yeah. Uh, not really. I think I worked on something that you had written, which I thought was done pretty well. Uh, I have a question. How does that work with, I mean, I can understand basic CRUD actions, but like, yeah. um, how does it scale out to other types of actions? So because I just use an atom identifier for the action, mm-hmm. I just come up with a term, right? So let's say I actually just had this today, which was like the user can approve uh, or can acknowledge a notification, right? So instead of like tying that back to, um, instead of tying that back to like an update on the notification, I actually just have the atom like man- or acknowledge underscore notification or something like that, mark as acknowledge, something mm-hmm. like that. And then I use that in the policy. So that's so why I've that, kind of been doing it. Does that Adam translate to like the function name of the action that you want to take? So yeah, this is like one really nice thing about GraphQL mutations. Like the mutation is effectively like a RPC call, right? You're like, uh-huh. call this function and then that thing translates to a policy. And then I'm like, can the user perform this action basically? Mm-hmm. Which I think is like quite a clean way of modeling it. Um, it's going to be really interesting now to try and bake that into a set of customizable roles, right? This user, like, it gets really weird. Like, how granular would you want to control those roles? And I'm not going to do anything like AWS style, like IAM policies, where it's like right, right. star and all of these different things. So I'm trying to keep it simple for now and just like get something straightforward. Um, but the other, the other thing that's been interesting is, uh, it's not just the backend that has to know about this set of rules, right? And that's always the, the, like, the inevitability about policies is they leak to the front end because mm-hmm. you need your app to understand like what menu items should I show you as a user? You don't want to navigate to a menu item and be like, lol, you can't do that. Or, <laughs> and in a lot of cases, you want to be able to say like, you shouldn't even see those things, right? right. You, should, you should have a subset of control that you can actually do. So... Um, I've been trying to design a schema that will work both on the back end and then be able to be sent down along with the user and their access for the front end so it can interpret that and then use it. I worked on something like that years ago. I haven't thought about this in a while, but what you just said reminded me of like, yeah, the server, the client was trying to be as dumb as possible or people didn't want to like duplicate this logic. Yeah. And so the server went to Herculean efforts to send back a like, all possible actions and then like things that you could take off that. And I think it makes like iOS code very, are you using React Native, right? Um, it makes a client. No, 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 code. we're not. It's, it's in Swift, but I, I oh, actually dope. have a, on that side, we don't really have this problem because uh, they have a very strict set of access rules. I don't even have to control. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's basically read only for everything. And mm-hmm. right now that's good enough. So it's really on the web app side. I have to deal with this. Yeah, I I don't know. I 
want to prefer just like hard coding these things. I mean, unless you yeah. have a ton of different options and different permutations, I think it's easier to reason about if you just kind of logically group what's possible. And yeah, there's some duplication. Yeah. But like, you know what, then it works. And then it's like, what? Because I think the point of this, these abstractions is that they're easy to change later. Yeah, you know, definitely. I mean, it yeah. doesn't matter if it's interesting in and of itself, which gets me to a question that I have is how do you deal with versioning um, some of these policies? Like if you have an API version uh, one where a user can take such and such, then what about version two where there's a different set of actions? Dude, that that was one of the biggest headaches at Frame that we had when we had this exact problem where it was uh-huh. like, if you're, and we even had it worse than that. And actually that was one other thing I wanted to talk about here, which is kind of the intersection of access with um, plan-based tiered features right because you're let's say that you have a plan that's like the bottom tier plan and they can't access that set of features as well right it's almost like the same set of problems does that make sense yeah yeah and 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 then you can also layer in one more level of complexity there around feature flags right i want to (laughs) release this thing early and Uh i want to make sure that desmond has it but i want to make sure that he has the right permission to actually access it as well so like for me, all of these things are like in my head and I'm trying to like, I'm trying to <laughs> break them out and see like which part fits where. And before what we did was um, we had the concept of policies and then we had the concept of available features on, on a like an account level. And then mm-hmm. we had the concept of feature flags and we'd kind of merge all these things together to get the actual access policy for what the user could do. If that makes sense. It was really, but, it, the logic got crazy at some points as well in the frame API. Um, and if any of the engineers there are listening, you'll know. Like we had this one that was like, if the user was before August the 1st, 2018, because we screwed up like a policy change and like, oh, that sure. was the date we had to deal with. So like now that's like in the policies, right? And then we, what we were trying to do is extract that into feature flags and yeah. other mechanisms to deal with it. But yeah, it, it gets really tricky. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that there's a way around those sorts of hacks around like, mm-hmm. oh, well, shit, like we didn't see this coming. We designed the thing as best we could, but then something out of our hands showed up. And so now we have to hard code like some before and after epoch for our users. Yeah. And um, I don't know. At some point, it's like, all right, just put the logic in, try to encapsulate it somewhere so you don't <laughs> usually have to think about it. But then like, fine, like that's computer programs. Like the real world is messy. Kind of yeah. like what I was saying earlier, like capturing this stuff is is tough and you're always playing catch up yeah. with your yeah. software. So Definitely. And, and, and like going back to our conversation about testing, holy shit, like we just unearthed like a ton of different permutations of your access permissions that you might have, right? That you may need to test. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like now you're talking about, oh, I need to test an account in this particular state to have this date of creation to make sure that they they pass through this one logic check to see that they can access this feature, right? Mm-hmm. And that, the way I really like to think about this now is trying to keep all of the authorization to the absolute boundaries of the system to make the inners a lot more easy to test. like Because then everything, I, and I guess to put this in the context of Phoenix context, no pun intended, uh, I like to try and think about my authorization being at my GraphQL, my API layer, and really doing everything there. And then my context not knowing anything about authorization now. Because so then, then, your con- then your context is just like, uh, 
functions that take arguments and return data. Like they don't have the concept exactly. of who's calling them. Exactly. And I have to pass in the current user sometimes because I want to uh, audit that current user or read in the ID and attribute an action back to that user, right? So a lot of my context functions have the signature of um, arguments or like a map of arguments or inputs or whatever. And then they always have the current user on the end. Mm-hmm. But I don't do any authorization with that anymore. And that was a change that I did for this API that I think has been actually quite good. Because previously what we did was, and this was at Frame.io as well, um, we had, it was actually kind of weird. We had all of our read authorization at the API level. So on mm-hmm. the controller, you would say, you are Desmond, can you read this resource, right? And that would all happen in plugs before the controller action got executed. Um, you fetch everything you need, you preload everything you need to deal with, Um and then on the other side, if it was a mutation, we would do all of that authorization check inside of the context. So you kind of had this like weird, like, oh, I when I'm unit testing my context, I need to think about um, for reads, I don't need to think about authorization. But for, like, for mutations, I do need to think about authorization. It's funny you bring that up. I've been um, working on this recently with our app is like, how do we... Uh... How do we define proper layers of like application responsibility? And I've gotten, Frank, honestly, I've gotten a little stuck um, in this because so you have your traditional like you scaffold a Phoenix app, you got your controller, and then it calls a context, and the context um, talks to the schemas or you know gathers the repo or whatever. But then you see other things that are like, oh well, you can do like uh, before filter plugs in your controller where you load the current user and then like preload their the author's posts or whatever because you need them yeah um but that kind of breaks down quickly when your application gets complicated because like some actions in your context uh need that association some of them need other associations some need very rich like data models to act on the thing and others don't but typically what i've i've seen is that whatever wherever you fetch the current user then you just bolt on all the possible preloads that you could need. And so you end up carrying a bunch of this stuff around, even though you don't need it. And there doesn't seem to be a good place to, um, uh, to do that specifically, like to do those different kinds of preloads. And so the pattern that I'm working on now is like my authorization plug just fetches the current user and that's all that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, there's no preloading. There's no nothing. And so the controller action gets params and a user. And then it's up to the context to preload anything that it needs from there. Um, so does that mean all your authorization of can the user actually do the thing? Like, let's say, you're, is this a RESTful API, right? Yes. So let's say you have a loan with an ID and then you have a user... Um, does that mean it's the context responsibility to say, can this user access this loan? Uh, not really, because we don't have very complicated access control okay. at this point. Like, yeah. if if the user can access, like, lines up with the borrower, um, then you can see everything about them. They can mm-hmm. do all these actions on behalf of the borrower. And you basically have the keys to the kingdom for this subset of people. So, uh yeah, either you can or you can't for the whole thing. Um, but then it gets more complicated when you add in like a validation layer, which mm-hmm. I think we've talked about before. 
um, because you want to check that the params that you got in are okay. And so now uh, you have your controller, which calls into this validation. And should that or should that not be in the context? And I think it should not be because typically your validation is tied to a particular version of your controller and a different action like create versus update or something. But then does that validation like gather anything from the database? You know, does it check this stuff? Like what does it spit back out? And uh, I find this gets kind of tricky. Yeah. Um, because then now you've pulled some of this validation out of your schema or you're kind of duplicating like my create change set with like create params. And is it okay to use both? I mean, maybe. Or do you want to say, I'm just checking that these fields are there. Like it's a certain kind of validation at the, at the boundary. You know, is this a number? Or does this even exist? And then there's a different kind of validation at the data store layer around like, do these do these relationships have the proper integrity or, you know, is this email unique or something? Um, and that adds some cognitive burden. And then it also, I think introduces some challenges because now you can easily bypass your validation. If you don't go in it, go into your, enter your app at the proper level. Right. If your validation is happening above the context layer and right. you jump on the console and type some shit into your context. Like you could easily put bogus data in your database. Yeah, and, totally. Uh, then you're going to have a bad time. Yeah. No, it's, it's a hard problem. I see where you're coming from. I think, first of all, I'm always like, you have to take out the API versioning problem from it and decouple it until you actually have it in some ways, you know, because I think it just blows your mind as soon as you start thinking about like, well, I've got, I might have like V1 of this controller and it would only need to update this subset of fields and then I have V2 and it would where my data models change substantially, so I only need to update this subset of fields, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that just feels like a whole different category of problem. But I think for what you're talking about, about um, receiving params from the outside world, validating those params on the way in, and not just doing everything at the change set, that makes a lot of sense. I think we've seen some pretty good passes at this. I'm just going to do one plug, which is GraphQL... <laughs> is a is a strongly typed schema right like you actually get this in it to an extent you get the you get i i want this it can't be null you get those kinds of validations for you mm. you don't get anything richer than that right you can say i expect this thing to be a string i expect this thing to be a number um i, I expect this thing not to be a null string those kinds of things but uh other than that that, that that's still really helpful for me can you, will it also handle casting? Like if I pass in a date as a string, will it turn that into a, a date time, date object? Yeah, time? so Gra GraphQL has a thing called scalar types and uh, they basically act quite a lot like ecto load and dump kind of ideas, right? Take mm -hmm. something in from the outside world, turn, transform it into something else. And um, out of the box, actually absinthe ships with this con uh, with like date time handlers for you and some other things. So I haven't actually had to think about that yet in my app, which is like the first time ever where you're like, I just know I'm going to get a, uh, some kind of date value and it has to adhere to this thing and it's going to be of a scalar type of date time and it will get dumped into the right format, which mm -hmm. is really nice, honestly, just that mm -hmm. alone. So, mm -hmm. um, But yeah, I, I guess putting GraphQL aside, if you have a REST API and that isn't uh, a possibility, I guess you can look at some options around like JSON schema or something like that, right? You could talk about your params. You can type your params in other ways and say that mm -hmm. you have to take them from the outside world, cast them to a schema, 
make sure that schema is valid, and then move it into the outside layers. Um, and then to the point about, yes, your contacts now don't understand the entire shape of the data that they need, but I think that's okay as well, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, as long as you can enforce, like, among the development team, you know, this is these are the different layers of the app. This is where each of these things is supposed to happen. Um, you know, if you are if you're trying to build something like as a developer, like if you're on the command line, then here's how you're supposed to use the app. Like if you're going outside of the normal pipeline. My, my experience with that has been like where we've had to call context functions in like data migrations and things like that, where, Mm -hmm. um, you forget about all of the params you need that are valid or you end up getting data in slightly the wrong shape. But and yes, that can be slightly problematic because you haven't got the full context about exactly what the shape of the data should be, how it should be casted, all of the params that are needed to be quote unquote valid, whatever that means, you know. Right. So it, I guess in some ways it might be beneficial to also have a lot of this at the ecto level as a fail safe, right? And that's kind of what I've been doing with the GraphQL schema. I'm like, I type all the params on the way in. Um, and then I also like make sure all of those things are casted properly on the ecto level, and then I still do validations at that level as well. So mm-hmm. yes, there is a duplicate set of validations, but um, in reality, in GraphQL, I think the overhead is fairly low because you have to type the schema anyway. You don't just get that generation for free. So you have to say like, these are the fields I expect. These are the fields I don't expect, right? Mm-hmm. And there's there's actually advantages in this as well because. Um, I think a lot of us think about like my form is a one-to-one mapping of exactly what's in my database right and that actually isn't good a lot of the times it means that like you have a very leaky schema and it means that like if anything needs to change on that schema it's going to be difficult right whereas like if you at least have like a slight abstraction between what's coming in and how it's getting saved um it means you can you know some sometimes it means that you can tweak what that schema looks like without the outside world having to know too much yeah or have a better user experience on the front end because it makes sense to enter these pieces of data together yeah that that is probably the best reason to do it as well because like not everything looks like a form that fits into a single table right yeah exactly (laughs) yeah and you know what sometimes it, it does have to be difficult to like insert things simultaneously or whatever it means together or however you need to insert that data and you have to do some extra work to parse it out and put it in the right places but yeah i i actually think that's an important lesson as well for everyone out there now you've uh you've kind of lit the fire under me to take another pass at this uh, validation <laughs> you ready stuff. to get hacking is that what you're saying well yeah because part of it is like well how can i make this play nicely with uh fallback controllers and right. at first i thought well i can inject these as plugs like into the you know before the action and that looks kind of tidy but then i thought uh now like this validator is doing a lot of heavy lifting because it's both validating and like implementing a plug interface and i don't know oh I quite and like and oh, no. I, I lose the ability to um modify params that come in because something that i do a lot like right. as your api is developing it's like well this input param could be called this or that and then my controller is just going to normalize any of these different things it gets into one canonical thing. And now I have to like, well, I guess you could put a plug in before the validation plug that normalizes everything. Have you ever seen the blog post from Stripe about how they do API versioning and handle this kind of concept? I don't think so. 
So they they do a really interesting time-based version. And, and if you've ever used the Stripe API, you probably know this because you've been on versions years in the past and everything still works. And the, the way that they do that is um, they implement modules that keep the latest version. And then they basically say, how do I transform that version to the previous one, to the previous one, to the previous one, right? Mm. So if param A for 2019 on the 11th of uh sorry the 5th of november um is called param a but last year it was actually called param c they haven't they have a way that knows how to transfer it back to param c so then you can always like go back through history effectively apply all these changes and then end up with the right the right like looking um params you know what that sounds like what's that hot code loading <laughs> yeah, I guess like yeah it actually yeah 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 you're kind of right like how do you mutate the state from one point in time to another sure. yeah you have this yeah. code change callback that knows how to yeah. translate your old state into new state yeah totally um we will put a link to that in the show notes incredibly interesting listening uh, uh incredibly interesting list re- interesting reading <laughs> out there for you um hopefully you're finding the the conversation interesting as well but well people uh, could it, have text-to-speech well What's that? Sorry. Pe- people could have text to speech. People could have. We should also do a transcript at some point. You know, we're just bad podcast hosts. So, sorry about that, folks. Okay. Well, I guess we should wrap up today's show. Um, it's been an interesting one, Desmond. Yeah, I it like, sure has. Considering we always start these things by being like, "What should we talk about?" and then we just dive into it. It's always yeah, great. So. A little behind the behind the Elixir Talk scenes is it's a lot of us being like, hmm. Nothing new today. Uh, <laughs> short episode, huh? And then, and then we find a topic and start rabbiting. So there we go. Um, but yes, as always, this has been another episode of Elixir Talk. Uh, I've been Chris Bell. I am still Desmond Bowie. And thank you so much for joining us. As always, if you have any feedback about this show or any of our other shows, you can get in touch with us at twitter.com forward slash Elixir Talk. Or you can open up a GitHub issue at github.com forward slash Elixir Talk forward slash elixir talk and as always we would really appreciate a rating or a review wherever you're getting this podcast today and if you want to tell your friends that would be great as well so thank you very much for listening everyone and keep elixir keep elixir in, elixir in.